I told myself, I definitely don't want to be a flipper. You know, I don't want to be doing condo conversions. Well, the main reason for that too was as I was kind of thinking about it, once we sold it, it's like, you know, you spend a year or even longer on these projects, on these development projects, and then you kind of sell them off. And, you know, even if we made some money, right, even if we made a hundred or $200,000, besides that, you have nothing to show for it, right? The reason why I like the rental game is, you know, we'll still do those renovations, but today, you know, I can essentially accumulate my assets. I have more than just figures in my bank account. And it kind of allows me to grow exponentially rather than just doing the work, getting paid. It just felt like a job. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. People often say that it's impossible to buy and hold in an expensive market like the Bay Area, LA, or New York. Well, today's guest will make you rethink that assumption. In this episode, we have Lior Rosansky. Lior is an investor based out of Boston, and on today's episode, Lior will tell us how to buy and hold in an expensive market. We'll be going over how to evaluate potential buy and hold deals and what we have to do to make it work. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy. All right, Lior, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. My name is Lior. I am a real estate investor out of Boston. You know, I always say that I was uh, destined to be doctor turned real estate guy. You know, for me, it's kind of a classic immigrant story on my end. I moved to the States over here. Parents always drove me to be a doctor. And, you know, uh, I ended up going to college for pre-med, ended up actually submitting a couple of med school applications. And then I kind of got a little bit of a bug. I, like I'm sure a lot of your listeners uh, you know, you kind of start exploring some websites and blogs that maybe the traditional parents don't always approve. Not those kinds of websites, but like, you know, the financial stuff. It's like alternative methods of survival instead of the traditional path of getting a job and whatnot. There you go. That's exactly it. You know, so I kind of started reading those as I was uh, submitting my med school apps and kind of got hooked, bought my first proper. I ended up uh, pulling the trigger on my first multifamily, withdrew my med school apps pretty much right after, you know, got in touch with a couple of local developers, started getting into condo development projects. And, you know, today it's led up to uh, being full-time real estate. I'm an agent and I own a $9 million portfolio in Boston. That's amazing. Do you want to go over how you're able to buy your first property? Because most people who are applying for med school usually don't have the cash to buy real estate. Yeah, that's a great point. So I basically took like quote unquote gap year between finishing college and going into med school you know, so I was actually working in a consulting, uh, management consulting. So, you know, I was working long hours, making pretty decent money. I was living at home, so I could really just save up most of my dollars. So within a year, you know, I saved up just enough money to be able to afford and get an FHA owner-occupant loan, put 3.5% down. And, you know, Boston was still expensive back then. But, you know, with 3.5% down, I didn't need too, too much cash. And I was able to jump into my first deal. Amazing. And you said it was a multifamily property? Yeah, it was a three family. Exactly. Got it. 
Do you want to go over some of the numbers regarding that deal? Yeah. So um, I ended up buying it for about 520000 Back then, my cash flow, you know, I was cash flowing about $1,000 to 1500 bucks, you know, a month. So it was a pretty good deal out front. Uh, funny story, I actually had that deal under contract at 600 And then I had an appraisal issue, you know, so I had to renegotiate $80,000 appraisal difference on my first transaction. So you learn a lot very, very quickly in real estate. Yes, as soon as I did that, and I kind of closed, I was like, well, I think I just made 80 grand on paper. So that's not too bad. There you go. It's pretty cool that your seller was willing to give you that concession. Yeah, you know, I have to give a lot of credit to my buyer's agent, who actually is my partner today. He was really able to kind of smooth it out with a seller, really connect with a guy. And, you know, it was an old school guy who's just selling off his assets. And what he told my partner was like, look, this kid's a young kid. You know, he's hungry. He wants the deal. Let's just make it happen. So, you know, when you put yourself out there, usually good things tend to happen. Good, good. And it's interesting. I thought Boston would be a lot more expensive than 500K for a threeplex. Oh, yeah. Today, it's no, you can't even buy a two family for 600. <laughs> yeah. So back, I mean, I bought that in 2016. You know, three families back then were probably going for about six to seven. And I kind of got a, a bit of a discount. Yeah. But today, I just, I actually just did another owner occupant loan on a three family a couple of months ago and I uh, just paid 900,000. Wow. Amazing. So let's go into what happened next. So after you bought your threeplex, you were still, I guess, applying for med school, but then I guess you stopped. Yeah, you know, I was, you know, I kind of realized what I just did and I started to network more with real estate folks, right? My buyer's agent introduced me to a couple of local developers. At the time, Boston was really hot for condo conversions, you know, where you take a multifamily, renovate it and sell it off as condos. You know, so I started walking with one developer and he started showing me the numbers and I was like, well, dang, you know, if I can make quarter of a million dollars on one project, why am I trying to do this whole med school thing? So kind of really lit off a bulb in my head. So the way I ended up doing it is, you know, the deal I made with the developer was like, look, if I can bring you a project that makes sense, can I basically become a part owner, learn from you, all that? And within a couple of months, you know, I withdrew the apps. And then within a couple of months, I was able to find, you know, an off-market deal for him, made sense. And we pulled the trigger on it. Great. So that was your second deal. That was my second deal. And then very shortly after, within a few months, I found my second, my third deal, which was another condo conversion project right in the same neighborhood, literally like a couple of blocks over. That's amazing. Do you want to talk about how you found this developer friend slash partner? Yeah. I mean, my agent at the time who again introduced me to the guy, I found him on Bigger Pockets. So, you know, I always recommend to folks go network on Bigger Pockets. I was going to a bunch of networking events. My agent ended up finding that developer through a networking event, right, where they just connected and, you know, got along. So he ended up just giving us some tours of his active projects. And that's kind of where we started learning about this whole model. Yeah. So, I mean, no fancy answer, really just networking, going on, you know, prominent websites and, you know, the rest kind of happens. Awesome. How were you able to find the deals for the developer? Yeah, I mean, I didn't really have a very sophisticated approach. The first condo project we found was actually a for sale by owner. It was on Zillow, came on within two days, and I literally just hounded the guy for like a week. We were able to get in, offer him a cash deal, and uh, we closed on it. The deal after that, the second development deal, by that time, I already started talking to a lot more agents, you know, kind of telling them, hey, you know, this is what I'm looking for. This is the areas I really like. So an agent that I knew brought us the deal before it went on the market and we were able to put it together. Yeah. So all you have to do is find the deal 
and then the developer took care of everything else, like financing it and getting the construction in and getting on the plans and yada, yada, yada. To a degree. So on the first condo conversion he did, he took care of bringing in the hard money as well as the private lender that was essentially the equity for the deal. On the second one, actually me and my partner had a contact and we were able to bring in the private lending ourselves. So we essentially raised the money for that deal completely ourselves. You know, we kind of positioned ourselves as people in the business. You know, we told them, look, this is our second deal. I already own another property too. You know, the lender had a lot of faith in us. He kind of knew us for a while and felt comfortable lending. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the process of doing a condo conversion, especially in Boston? I'm sure it's different everywhere else. Yeah. So the model we were doing is a full gut rehab. And basically what that meant was we were literally taking these properties down to the studs. You know, we were redoing absolutely everything, new plumbing, new electrical, reframing, you know, board and plaster, all that good stuff. It's a long process. I mean, most projects here like that take about eight to 12 months for multifamilies. You know, because you have to submit for permits and Boston's a very active development city. So by the time you get your permits, you're looking at a couple of months, you know, so all in all, it took about, you know, it's supposed to take about eight to 12 months. It took longer for us, which I can get into later, but that's how you learn. Exactly. Can we talk about some of the numbers involved with it? Because I have no idea how to determine if this, if a potential deal is for good for condo conversions or not. Yeah, I'll give you the deal for the second property it was pretty straightforward. We bought the property for 650. At the time when we were underwriting the deal, we thought we could do the work for about 350,000, which was about $125 per square foot, which is a good number, which is what most developers use in Boston at the time. You know, we'd have holding costs of about 100, 150,000, so if you do the math, we'd be in at about 1.1, 1.15, and the sellout was about at 500,000 per unit. Got it. So this is a what, threeplex as well? Three family, correct. Okay, got it. Is that something that's very popular over in Boston? Yeah, it's a very, very common model. I mean, most flippers today, they'll either flip single families older, or they'll do this condo conversion project where they take a two or three family, gut it, and sell off as condos. It's very, very common. Yeah, my cousin lives in Boston, and I think she lives in a threeplex as well. And for those houses, I think they're mostly vertical, right? So like the first unit may be on the top floor, second in the middle, and then they're on the bottom, maybe in the basement. It's called a triple decker here. Yeah. Okay. Triple decker. Yeah. It's a Boston landmark. Got it. Over uh, in Florida where I own my fourplex, that's actually all on like one story. So you have basically like, you know, four neighbors all attached together with separate walls. Yeah. I mean, Boston real estate is very different from other places around the country. The triple decker or you have like the Philadelphia style two families, like those are really, really common here. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting that you're able to buy something for 650, put in 350 of work hold it for, you know, 150 for your holding costs and hard money loans, and then sell for 500 each. That sounds like an amazing deal. So it was an amazing deal. And that's why I got very, very excited because I thought I was going to make half a million bucks, you know, within a year. But this is the learning curve, right? I mean, it did not play out like that. You know, there was a bunch of issues came up. We had, I learned a ton about managing contractors on that particular deal. We had to reframe the house three different times. We had a plumber that bailed on us after rough plumbing. A couple of times we were actually kind of close to not being able to make some of the loan payments. So, I mean, at the end of the day, I knew it was going to be more of an educational endeavor rather than financial. And I learned a ton. I mean, I use that as foundational knowledge for everything I do today. You know, we ended up kind of just getting by by the skin of our teeth. But it's really the experience that I took from that, you know, really helped launch my portfolio today. Has that deterred you from doing more condo conversion projects into something a little bit less risky? 
Yes. After those projects, I told myself, I definitely don't want to be a flipper. And I, you know, I don't want to be doing condo conversions. The main reason for that too, was as I was kind of thinking about it, once we sold it, it's like, you know, you spend a year or even longer on these projects, on these development projects, and then you kind of sell them off. And, you know, even if we made some money, right, even if we made a hundred or $200,000, I mean, you really, besides that, you have nothing to show for it, right? The reason why I like the rental game is, you know, we'll still do those renovations, but today, you know, I can essentially accumulate my assets. I have more than just figures in my bank account. And it kind of allows me to grow exponentially rather than just, you know, doing the work, getting paid. It just felt like a job. It makes sense because when you come to like flipping, wholesaling, or even being an agent, you're only really as good as your last deal. And then if you don't have anything else, you're, you're stuck, right? There's nothing else. Whereas for rentals, that stuff pays you forever as long as you hold on to it. And I think I heard on Bigger Pockets, it's kind of like if you have a sheep, right? You can either kill the sheep for the meat or you can like shear the sheep and use its wool over and over and over again. So it's a balance. That's a fantastic analogy. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, I mean, it depends on your goals too. But for my goals, what I was thinking at the time is I really wanted to build up a rental portfolio. And, you know, my initial thinking was maybe I can flip, take that money and to buy rental properties. The issue is you also got to figure out how much risk you're willing to take throughout all your endeavors, right? I mean, gut renovating and flipping, it's a full business, right? And there's quite a bit of risk to it. I mean, you're exposing yourself to market risks. You know, there's a lot that can go wrong. So the model I decided to take was, you know, my kind of my steady income would be my agent business, which is, you know, which I view as a little bit less risky, right? I don't have to sign loans and I don't have to go into these crazy projects that I can use to funnel and support my rental business. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm actually personally doing something similar to what you're doing uh, with my transition. But let's go into more into your story. So you were doing your two con development deals. What happened afterwards? Yeah, so I was still employed at the time, but actually... I kind of knew I had to leave my job the day of closing of the second condo project. You know, it was a funny story. We were supposed to close in June and both the developer and my partner were both out on, you know, I think they went up to like New Hampshire or Maine for the weekend. They were out of town and they just said, hey, Liart, we need you to close on the deal. There's not that, you know, everything's all said. Don't worry, not a hair. I mean, it's going to be very smooth. And of course, that same day I, in my corporate job, I had a huge client deliverable. And what ended up happening, I remember this day so well, at 10 a.m., I got a call that everything's on fire. Our insurance policy didn't go, you know, there was something wrong with it and that they needed me to go to the insurance office, get a new policy, figure it all out. And I obviously had slides I had to do for my corporate job. So I had to go, you know, I running like a maniac across town. You know, we ended up closing on the property, but you know, I, I didn't quite deliver as much as I hoped I would be able to on the corporate side. And I think at that time, both me and my employer knew it was uh, time to part ways a little bit. Did your employer know that you were prioritizing your real estate deals over your work? I mean, did they know that you're doing real estate? You know, I think some of my coworkers knew because they knew I'd have to take calls. They can see me scrolling on bigger pockets all the time or on, on realtor.com looking at deals. So some of my coworkers knew. You know, obviously, like I didn't tell my upper management at that point, I kind of knew I'd need to make the transition soon enough. But after that whole fiasco with closing on that deal and barely missing a client deliverable, I knew it was, you know, I only had really one option. Yikes. I was in a similar situation as you where I didn't tell my boss, but my coworkers kind of knew that I was doing real estate. But then, you know, I told one of my stories. I actually got on Bloomberg magazine. And then that's when all my management saw my face, like, boom, right there in the front of their like homepage. They're like, what the hell? 
Yeah, it's so funny because, you know, the, I was kind of that guy. Everyone knew it was like, oh, well, if you walk by Leor's desk, he probably has one screen open with the slides and one screen open with like Realtor.com or Craigslist or Bigger Pockets. So that I was starting to build a reputation very quickly. Very nice. So then after you left your full-time job at your consulting company, what happened next? Yeah, so we, uh, you know, those condo projects took the better part of the next year, year and a half. Again, we didn't make a ton of money. I mean, I learned a lot, but there was a lot of a lot of bumps and bruises along the way. You know, it turned out that some of the partner, you know, the developer we had partnered with, we weren't on the same ethical standards as well. So, you know, you kind of learn the kind of the street rules of business very quickly. Like, you know, you learn to judge people, you learn how it works, how it functions. Like I said, I kind of use as an educational crash course. I was at that point also launching my brokerage business. So we were getting that going so that we could at least continue to pay the bills while we were operating on those projects. Yeah. So what were you doing to sustain yourself after you lost your full-time income? Like I said, I mean, it wasn't like in one day I decided to quit, right? I mean, I already kind of had that thought for a couple of months before it actually happened. So I was saving very, very aggressively, you know, so I had a stash of cash that I could get by and, you know, not be hurting too much. Plus, you know, within a couple of months, I was starting to make pretty good income on the agent side as well. You know, me and my partner at that time was already an agent for three years. So he already had a book of business. So we were able to generate pretty steady income relatively quickly, which definitely helped with the transition a lot. Yeah. How did you meet this original buyer's agent? He was the guy I met from Bigger Pockets. Yeah. Got it. So you didn't meet the developer on Bigger Pockets. You met this agent on Bigger Pockets. Correct. Yeah. I met the agent through Bigger Pockets and that agent had been networking with that developer. Exactly. Okay. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And so I'm assuming that this was your transition into like the brokerage side, because it is pretty hard for a brand new person to just jump in and become you know, a successful agent. What did you do to make that transition like smooth? Yeah. I mean, on the brokerage side, I kind of had a game plan. I knew what I was good at. You know, I had already taken a couple of clients while I was, you know, towards the end of my endeavor at the corporate world. I was a really, really good cold caller. So that was just kind of my strategy moving forward, both for my brokerage business, as well as to continue on the portfolio side as well. I mean, I knew I was a great cold caller. So I literally was just hammering the phones the first half a year. Honestly, even today, I still hammer the phones because I think it's the best way to, you know, it's the best way to generate exclusive leads, both on the brokerage side, as well as the acquisitions. Yeah, that's great. I know personally, I have a hard time cold calling people. Like I tried it for a couple of months and like, it, honestly, it's not for me. And I have some friends who are just like gods at it. They love, love, love cold calling people nonstop. And it's just like an inherent gift, I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I get asked that a lot too. And it's, I wouldn't say I necessarily love it. I almost see it as one of the easier ways to generate exclusive leads. You know, today I'm certainly going after more passive streams of uh, ways to generate leads, right? I mean, today we're doing a lot of social media leads, you know, getting a lot of social media leads through our YouTube channel, Instagram, all that good stuff. But I still think at the end of the day, having cold calling is just an easy way to generate, an, you know, kind of like a bump in your pipeline. Sure. And were you cold calling homeowners or potential buyers for your agency business? For my real estate business, I was very focused on the seller side. You know, I would cold call like expired, mainly expired listings, to be honest. You know, I would generate some buyer business through through bigger pockets, right? So I basically leveraged my investing experience and kind of positioned myself as the investor-friendly agent. So I worked with a lot of house hackers, other house hackers, other investors, 
And I still do today, really. I mean, that is still a big portion of my business. We were able to kind of develop that into helping us not only with acquisitions, but using that to leverage into our brokerage business as well. Sure. Makes sense. What were you doing on Bigger Pockets to establish yourself as this person to go to? Honestly, very straightforward. I mean, I would just interact, right? I mean, I would, every time people asked any questions about the market, about experiences with tenants, whatever it is, I would always chime with as much valuable information as I can. You know, so I basically would just make it a priority to go on Bigger Pockets once a day, go to the forum, see how I can help to different people. And it's crazy. I mean, when people see you delivering value, they reach out to you, they see you as the guy or gal, and they want to work with you because you're the guy that knows, you know, that can deliver. Yeah, that's pretty smart. Maybe I'll take your tip on that and post more on Bigger Pockets in the future. Hey, you know what? I still have it on my calendar to post on Bigger Pockets once a week, this, uh, even today. So, yeah. That's good. Do you make your own forum posts or do you just kind of like hop on and talk on someone else's questions? I still do a lot of that. I have started to do a lot more of my own forums. I, you know, I started a blog on there. So I'm trying to put out a little bit more original content now that I have even more to offer. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Uh, how has the whole COVID-19 situation affected your business? To be honest, I mean, from an acquisitions perspective, not too much. We actually had two very, very big closings for us in February, like literally a couple of weeks before COVID hit. You know, so we closed on about two and a half million bucks of rentals. We were able to stabilize them relatively quickly. You know, we did some light cosmetics, able to get them rented out literally in the nick of time. In terms of acquisitions, that's, we didn't really feel it that much. Our pipeline today is definitely a little slimmer, you know, and a lot of the leads we had are definitely a little bit more hesitant about potentially selling. I still have two deals under contract right now that I'm looking to purchase. It just, the way I say it is it takes a lot more muscle to push everything through. That's good. Good. And you know, going back to your original acquisition, Boston is, you know, not a cheap market. It's kind of like LA or maybe even the Bay Area. How come you didn't have the uh, same temptation as a lot of us who don't invest in our local markets because they're too expensive and just invest somewhere in the Midwest or, you know, somewhere basically cheaper? Yeah, I can tell you, I did a lot of thinking and a lot of research about that. And that's kind of where I really created my own personal investment philosophy, for me, I mean, you know, I, I'm not looking to be rich tomorrow, right? I mean, I'm, you know, we're both younger guys. I'm a younger guy. I kind of have a long-term vision. So I don't really want to play in these markets where I'm necessarily, you know, squeezing every single penny on the cash flow side that I can, right? For me, I'm more worried about or I'm more concerned with building a real quality portfolio in a market that I know is going to be here tomorrow in 10 years and in 50 years, right? I'm a huge believer in the Boston market. You know, I know it's incredibly economically diverse, so fundamentally strong. So, you know, for me, I'd rather have that invest a great investment portfolio that will take care of me today, but more importantly, will take care of me in 20, 50 years and will never go out of style. Yeah, that's really well said. I mean, I think there's different philosophies for investing for sure, but I know bigger pockets like to push the whole cash flow perspective of it, mostly because you basically can't go wrong as long as you're getting cash flow, right? Because it'll pay for everything, every expense. But the downside is there isn't as much appreciation as in these top tier markets like Boston, LA or San Francisco. But when you look back at it, the appreciation side is really where the wealth is being created. You don't actually make that much per se from the cash flow. Like if you held a property here in the Bay Area, you could easily have made $1 million over the past year. But how many rentals renting at $100 per month do you need to get 
to make a million dollars in that same time frame. You know, it's like, it seems unrealistic, right? So. Oh man, I talk about this all the time because the other thing I get, I mean, you know, people on bigger pockets, I think bigger pockets is a fantastic platform. I think the only thing is you kind of be got to be a little bit careful about drinking all the Kool-Aid on there, right? Because you know, you will definitely hear all about cash flow. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I will never buy a property that's like negative cash flow, right? I mean, you won't live to see the day where you're rich, right? If you're negatively cash flowing. But you're right. I mean, I remember taking a course from a really smart guy. You know, his name is Ben Labovich. He's on Bigger Pockets, And I remember just hearing him say one little thing that completely changed the trigger in my mind where he was making this exact point where cash flow is not the holy grail, right? It's you know, cash flow is almost like a defense mechanism. It's a mechanism to get you to that equity buildup. And equity is where you make all all your money, right? You know, so again, you cannot be cash flowing, you can't be losing money every month. But, you know, if you can sit on these quality, quality assets and you think you have a good chance at appreciation, that's where all the wealth has been built. Absolutely. So cash flow should probably be more thought of as a way to hold on to the property as the appreciation builds up over the years. It's your defense to the offense. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So after you left your corporate job and after you finished those condo conversions, what kind of real estate were you looking into? And tell us some of the deals you did afterwards. After the condo conversions, you know, I was starting to look at more buy and holds like I was telling you about. You know, what I learned quickly as well is on my first property, I actually had uh, two of my three units were section eight tenants. And I got very hooked into this idea of going into these section, you know, playing with the section eight markets, you know, just because I was looking at all the opportunities and I just, you know, and I actually, I still talk about this today, but for me, the fact that I was able to get guaranteed rent on my, you know, guaranteed rent on my rentals was mind blowing. So I started going strategically after neighborhoods where I knew I could maximize the opportunity from section eight. You know, I think there's a lot of deficiencies in that system the way they distribute the rents, the way they calculate the rents. If you know how to really play the game, there's ways that I think smart investors can really capitalize. Did you ever find any downsides or deficiencies to Section 8? Yeah, I mean, you know, the biggest thing is obviously it's a logistical nightmare, right? I mean, you got to deal with, you know, there's so much paperwork. You know, every time you need an answer, you got to go and call a hotline, you get placed, right? It's it's doing business with the government, right? It's never going to be smooth and easy, but I think the upside and besides even the guaranteed rent, I mean, there's, you know, I can talk about some of the opportunities I see there. I think there's just enough things in there to make it so worthwhile that it kind of really narrowed my focus as to where I wanted to focus my investments on. Yeah, I've heard some stories where Section 8 pays more than market rent. And in those cases, it's actually really, really like super worth it to Section 8 because guaranteed rent. Yeah. So if you really look at how Section 8 does rents on, you know, how they calculate the rents, they actually do it by zip codes. At least they do it in Boston. I would imagine they do it nationally as well. And in Boston, you know, when you get into these major metropolitan areas, they can obviously be super, super segmented, right? I mean, you can literally have like one or two streets that are beautiful, gorgeous, million dollar houses, right? And then a couple streets over, it's a totally different neighborhood. Right. So if you understand that and you look at how Section 8 calculates their rent standards and they do it by zip code, you can actually see that you can get incredible premiums to what you might otherwise be able to get on market. Mm-hmm. And so what kind of properties were you buying? Were they single family homes or multifamily? Yeah. So it was all multifamilies. I mean, I was for me, the path was clear. I never really wanted to go into a single family game, you know, so and, and honestly, even the two families for me, they just didn't seem like they had enough scale to it. So I've always been focusing on three units and up. 
Got it. Do you ever do any like apartment building styles or are they mostly like threes and fours? Most of them are triple deckers, kind of like the one we talked about before. The biggest deal we closed to date was basically a nine unit portfolio. But again, it was two triple deckers and then a ground up construction portion to it. I mean, it's just the most common, like it's a very common housing stock here. So, you know, that's why we own so many of those. What kind of square footage are the lots for your triple deckers? Depends. Most of them are probably in about 4,000 square feet. You know, they're not huge lots. You know, a lot of these buildings were built in the early 1900s, you know, so back then you obviously didn't need the space that you need today. Today, you know, we're actually, I'm doing a couple of ground up construction rentals and you need bigger lots to get three or four units approved. That's crazy because here, a single family home is probably on a 5,500 square foot lot. Wow. Yeah, no, we've got some very, very small lots here. Yeah. So I think most of the townhomes here that are in the similar style as those Boston triple deckers, they are on maybe a 1500 square foot lots. And then they just built straight up with like three or four floors. And sometimes they're like interlocking where like one guy doesn't get a first floor, one guy gets a whole second floor and something like that. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a little, uh, from a design perspective, I don't think the city of Boston's crazy about something like that. But yeah, I mean, that happens here too, right? I mean, you kind of have to maximize the land, right? I mean, you're dealing in a major city. At the end of the day, land is limited, right? So you kind of got to make do with what we have. Exactly. Yeah. And how are you financing those deals? Yeah, so what I ended up doing was I didn't want to go back to hard money, right? Because, you know, when I was doing the math on my condo projects, I saw how much money my hard money lenders made. You know, so for me, it was going to the commercial financing space made a lot of sense. So what I ended up doing was actually partnering with another person who had already experience in in the commercial financing space. And I basically was able to leverage his relationships. And we were able to essentially work together where, you know, for the first couple of deals, he would bring in the financing you know, so we'd get basically like 70, 75% LTV notes with construction arms at interest rates of between, you know, four and a half and five and a half percent. But the key with that obviously is you need experience, right? I mean, you can't just stroll into a, a commercial lender's office and say, hey, I want to pull this kind of loan. You definitely need some sort of portfolio or experience. So for me, that's why it kind of made sense to leverage that relationship and really dig into that. Can you go into that one more time? How are you able to get like a commercial loan for like a threeplex buy and hold renovation? Yeah, I mean, the process is pretty similar to like, say, even a hard money application, right? It's it's basically a local community lender. You go through the same process where you submit an app, they go through the appraisal process, they will look at the numbers like a hard money lender. You know, they will look at current acquisition, they will look at construction and renovation scope. They're going to look at your ARV and your projected pro forma. And if the numbers make sense, which obviously, if I didn't think the numbers wouldn't make sense, I wouldn't bring it to them. You know, if the numbers make sense, then they'll issue the loan. Wow. I had no idea those kind of loans existed. So I definitely have to look into those in the future. Yeah. You know, and especially as you build out portfolio, I mean, that's one of the big things too, is, you know, you don't necessarily want to keep paying, you know, 12% every single time. Again, when you're starting out, you don't really have an option. And, you know, I did the same thing. But as you gain experience, as you have more relationships, as you have a portfolio, you know, instead of paying 12%, if you can pay 4 to 5%, I mean, it's a no-brainer, right? Right. And so what's the strategy? Do you just buy it with those rates and then keep them on as like a 30-year fix? Or do you do some kind of cash out or sell the properties after you're done with them? You know, we kind of do it like a burr model, basically, where we buy, renovate, rent. I always forget the R's. Refinance. Yeah. So we basically do the burr strategy, basically, where... You know, we'll raise the equity, 
from private lenders. We'll close on the deal. We'll do the renovations or the stabilization for a year or two. The way the mortgage is structured is they're converting notes. So basically what that means is the first year we're typically on interest only note, right? While we're still doing the construction or renovation. After year one, it goes into a fully amortizing 25 to 30 year note that, you know, we can obviously refinance a year two or three if we wanted to. We've chosen so far not to, you know, for various reasons. But yeah, you can just sit on it for the next 25 to 30 years if you wanted to. So for that 25% you're putting down, is that your own funds or are you raising that from other investors as well? No. So we are raising those funds. I mean, you know, like I said, Boston's a super expensive market. So if we try to put our own funds every single time, we'd be broke very, very quickly. You know, I mean, most of our acquisitions are between six to 600,000 to a million bucks. So we're typically raising somewhere in the vicinity of two to $300,000. And, you know, we either use, raise them as equity or as private debt, depending on the deal and structure. Are you raising that on like bigger pockets or through your local networking groups? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, at first it was definitely a lot of bigger pockets and I still certainly do that. I mean, that's a great marketplace for networking and finding these kinds of investors. You know, as I built out a portfolio, I've been able to build out more contacts. I even had my family invest in one of my deals. But yeah, you, as you gain experience, as you do more deals, you'll naturally meet more people, your network will grow. And there's a lot of people out there that, you know, have money sitting in the bank account that are really successful, but just don't have the time to do real estate deals. And those are usually the best people that are, you know, the best people to write those kinds of checks, because for them, it's it's a win win, right? They don't have to get into the nitty gritties of dealing with the lenders, dealing with the attorneys, dealing with the contractors, and you know, they can still take portion of ownership in these deals. Yeah. And to entice them to invest in your deals, what kind of like equity stake are you offering them or maybe even debt percentage? Yeah, I think it's very deal dependent. I mean, debt percentage, I will still do from about 10 to 12%. That's just honestly, I, that's what the marketplace offers. So I have to stay competitive. On the equity side, you know, we've really done a quite a bit range. I mean, it just depends on how much work there is, what kind of returns I think I can deliver to the investors. You know, we're usually, I'd say we're usually looking somewhere between 30 to 50% of the equity for the funds. And that usually allows me to deliver very, very strong returns to them. The way I underwrite my uh, returns to them is usually by internal rate of return or IRR. So we usually shoot for like mid-teens IRR, maybe up to 20%. You know, so if I feel like I can deliver returns, that's where I think I can deliver the returns. That's the percentage I'll offer. Got it. Do you ever have to worry about creating like a PPM for uh, these offerings? Yeah, I think as we're going to, now that we're doing bigger projects, that's certainly where we're heading. You know, uh, initially, when you're dealing, doing on a smaller scale, you know, you probably should be doing, but there's no sense in going through like all these things when it's a $200,000 raise, right? I mean, yeah, it's so expensive to do something like that. So it's so expensive. And, the, you know, you need to get proper legal channels, proper, it's a whole nother beast, but you know, as our deals are getting bigger now, that's certainly something that's very forefront of mind for me. Absolutely. And again, is the exit strategy to just hold on to them like forever or are you trying to sell them in the near future? Yeah. I mean, for me personally, I want to sit on real estate for as long as possible. What I tell my investors and the way I really position these projects is I always say, hey, worst case scenario, we sell out within two to three years, right? Because, you know, ideally we figure out a way to refinance, get your capital out, you know, you get your money back and we still sit on this asset very happy along our ways. But if something changes, we'll obviously have to, we'll sell it off and get your money back no matter what. But, you know, I, in an ideal world, like I said, I mean, 
my goal is to just continue to build out my portfolio. So if I can figure out a way to sit on these things, I will. <laughs> and when you refinance a deal like this, since most of them are under like this construction loan that I don't know too much about, when you refinance, would you just go through like a traditional channel? Yeah, so we're actually starting to think about doing a couple of refinances on on some of our earlier deals from 2017 and 2018. We just haven't done it yet because there's really hasn't been much of a reason to. You know, now it's kind of getting to the point where we want to return some investor capital and then have them reinvest with us. So, in terms of what kind of loan options we have, you know, we can certainly go back to that same local lender or another local community bank. We've started to dig around and see if we have options and potentially getting agency debt, you know, where we can get Fannie Freddie backed loans, commercial loans, you know, where the rates can be even in the threes I've heard, you know, so we're, we're certainly exploring those kinds of options as well. Yeah, because I wonder if they would limit you to doing, you know, four or 10 loans, because it's, you know, Freddie or Fannie, I honestly have no idea how it's going to work. Yeah, on the residential side that, you know, you certainly will get cap, but on the commercial side, I mean, you know, most big multifamily players will use agency debt because, it's the cheapest and most attractive type of debt, to be honest. Yeah. And it'll probably be like a portfolio loan. So you can get all of your properties kind of under one loan. Exactly. Yeah. We're, yeah, exactly. That's another avenue we're thinking of. Do we combine a bunch of assets, maybe do it under one blanket loan? So yeah, we've got some different exit strategies that we're kind of trying to figure out which one is the best to place right now. Mm -hmm. And can you give me an example of a threeplex that you kind of think it's a good deal? Yeah. So one of the ones that we bought in 2018, probably one of my favorite ones, we bought a three family for about, uh, let's see, we bought it for 650. We bought it with tenants in place, you know, that were paying below market rents at the time. You know, I think they were paying around $1,500 for three bedroom units, whereas market rent is about 23 to 2,500. You know, we got a construction loan for about $70,000, you know, which basically allowed us to clean up the units do some kitchens, do some baths, do some floors. And by this point, we've spent a little bit more than 70. We're probably closer to 100. I mean, you know, we've dealt with a couple of evictions that were out-of-pocket costs that were, you know, obviously unforeseen. But, you know, we're all in at about, say, 750 or so. Those properties today are probably worth nine and a quarter, maybe nine, nine and a quarter. And they're obviously cash flow and fantastic. We've got, you know, we've got them all up to market rents. So they generate good cash as well. Yeah. That's actually really impressive. I didn't realize that your numbers in Boston cash flow so well. Because like, for example, here in the Bay Area, you're not going to find anything. Well, probably not, but you probably won't find a threeplex for $650. And then to be able to rent it out for $2,500 or so after that's all fixed up, that's that's amazing cash flow. Yeah. And again, just to put in perspective, I mean, this deal is from like late 2017, 2018. But even today, those opportunities exist. I mean, the one that I just bought that I house hacked for 900 that I mentioned earlier in the show, you know, I bought that deal with an FHA loan. So that one was a residential loan, but I bought it off of MLS. I got it delivered vacant and I cleaned it up for about 60, 70 grand or so, you know, just put paint walls, that kind of very light lipstick. And we're just about completely leased out there and we're getting twenty three hundred and twenty eight and twenty eight. So our gross rent roll is almost eight thousand dollars. Yeah, it's amazing. Awesome. How about now? So is that basically what you're doing full time? You're basically doing your agency thing and you are raising funds and doing uh I guess renovations on three plexes? 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, I split my time between my uh, broker business. I'm an active agent. I also run a group now where we got a couple of agents working with us. So I'm looking to continue to grow that organization out. And then the other part of my time is, yeah, spent on acquisitions, underwriting, you know, negotiating with Section 8. So yeah, I got my hands full. Super exciting. Well, you are, this was a very interesting conversation. Do you have any other last tips that you'd like to give for our listeners before we end our show today? Yeah, I mean, I'd say the biggest thing, you know, I get a lot of newer investors reaching out to me. The biggest thing I'd say is you just got to pull the trigger, right? I mean, I honestly had very little clue what I was doing when I was getting into those condo projects. I honestly, I should have, I didn't mention this, but I didn't even really know what a permit was, right? I didn't know that you had to go through this thing called permitting, deal with a city. I mean, I was, I had no idea. So at the end of the day, you kind of just learn by getting your hands dirty, you know, do as much education as you can on the upfront and soak in as much, network as much. But at the end of the day, you just kind of got to jump into it and you'll learn once you have a fire to your hands. Yeah, absolutely. So Lior, how can people get in contact with you? Uh, yeah, uh, they can reach out to me. Um, I'm on social media. I've got a YouTube channel. You can just search my name, Leo Rosansky. I'm on Instagram, Leo Rosansky RE. If you guys want to get in touch with me, you can also go on my personal website, LeoRosansky.com, which is kind of a hub of uh, my brokerage and acquisitions website. And it also has my email and phone number. I'm you know, always happy to take calls and emails. Me and my partner also just launched kind of like an educational initiative where we're trying to you know, teach basically everything that we've done so far. That's cashflowgiants.com. We're putting out a ton of free content on there. Yeah, so that's what we're doing today. And don't forget, you're also on Bigger Pockets as well. And I'm on Bigger Pockets. Exactly. All right, Lior, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for having me. Cool, take care. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. If you're just getting started, find a mentor to work with who can guide you on the process and fill in the knowledge gaps that you might have. Join meetup groups or join virtual communities to find great people to work with. To be a successful investor, you need to learn how to analyze deals so that you can buy properties with confidence. Make sure that they cash flow and find out how to finance them so that you can hold on to them as they appreciate over time. If you learn to take action, maybe you'll have a large portfolio of assets in an expensive market too. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, Join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.